by Didier Drogba. Yes, the greatest night in Chelsea's history. Champions of Europe at last. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SW6D podcast. And today, once again, listen, listen, listen. I keep telling you guys that I keep raising the standards for each single episode I do bring out. You know, I keep bringing on different sorts of people that every single one of you enjoy. But this one, when I tweeted this one out, all of you kept on getting into my DM saying, how have you done this? Just like, this is a massive one. All of you threw que- I've never had this many questions in the podcast episode before, and I'm so happy. But before I go on watching about all of that, I'd love to introduce my guest to the podcast. We have one of the most popular journalists on Twitter and at The Athletic as well, especially in the Chelsea community, I've got on Liam Boomi. Liam, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad. Not doing too bad. And thank you so much for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. So... I've also got on today, I've got on my co-host for the first proper time, since he's going to be my co-host going forward. I've got on Mr. Jay McIntosh. Jay, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very excited. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Liam's a guy that we've wanted to talk to for for absolutely ages and seeing all the questions pour in just makes it even better. So uh, yeah, let's get on to it. I'm really excited. Let's get straight into the conversation now. Liam, unfortunately, I'm sure you've gotten tagged several times. I'm not even a journalist myself, you know, but I get people asking me like I have information about this stuff and I don't, unfortunately. So hopefully, I'm hoping you can shed a bit of light on this. I've gotten at least 100 tags today and I myself have been under Chelsea's notifications today. Everybody's asking, when are we announcing Kai Havertz? You know what? I gave up trying to predict when clubs announce things years ago because <laughs> clubs can clubs can wait months even after a deal is is completed like when they sign a player to a new contract for example they can wait up to two months to announce it whenever they want and increasingly these announcements are like big social media events in themselves so I don't think Kai Havertz is done to the point of being announced yet um, but I think it will get done I'm pretty confident. I think Chelsea are pretty confident that it will get done. Timing-wise, who knows? I mean, it, it, I, I think it will probably be completed sooner rather than later. But then in terms of when Chelsea announce it, it's really up to their social media team and their commercial department and when they decide that it will make the biggest possible splash for them. Although, to be fair, I think they could drop it any time and it would make a huge splash because the amount of excitement on Chelsea Twitter about this particular transfer is probably unlike anything I've seen uh, maybe since Eden Hazard. Uh, well, are Chelsea really the only destination that Havertz fancied, do you know? Or, or did he have other suitors and he's rejected those? Or how did it, how did it sort of pan out, if you know anything about that? Well, I think the, the circumstances, the stars have aligned for Chelsea, really, to, to make a run at Havertz and to be the number one option for him. I mean, they've, they've tracked him for more than 12 months, but that, that in itself is not particularly special. Every top club in Europe has been looking at Kai Havertz ever since he broke into the, the Bayer Leverkusen senior team because he is that special. And in any ordinary summer, he would have his pick of clubs. And in that situation, there's every chance Chelsea might not be top of his list because you know you, you hear contrasting noises that he, he one day wants to play for Barcelona or or a lot of players do. 
But this summer, of all summers, um, a lot of clubs are not feeling secure in their finances. A lot of clubs don't feel like they can go out and spend the kind of money it would take to get Havertz out of Leverkusen, even with you know two years left on his contract. And a lot of those clubs are, have been talking to Leverkusen including Bayern Munich, basically saying if he's still around next summer with a year left, then come talk to us because we'll be very interested. But this summer, Chelsea are the only club that have shown a willingness to to come near Leverkusen's valuation and they've made it clear they're very interested in Havertz. He's their top priority signing. They have recognised an opportunity to get a player who might well be a generational talent Mm-hmm. Um, when in other summers they, they might not have this chance so I think Chelsea have been aggressive because of that and that's why I expect this deal to get done mm. I mean because I've seen the work rate from everybody I see everybody tagging I see people tagging you I see them tagging so many journalists I'm sure you get tired of seeing that in your notifications every other day well what I find funny is um, why people think that if a journalist had the Kai Havertz to Chelsea exclusive, why they would reveal it to someone who DM'd them <laughs> or, or replied to one of their tweets. You know, there's value in that information. Mm. If, if any of us actually had that story 100% confirmed, it would be run and it would be all over your Twitter feed and mm. that would be the news. Mm. So I, I understand it. It's the excitement. A lot of it is done tongue-in-cheek tongue as well because people are excited and impatient. But when you think about the actual numbers involved, in these kind of deals, when you actually take a step back and think that there's potentially up to 100 million euros just in a transfer fee involved in a deal like this, and then maybe another 100 million or more involved in salary over the course of the contract. Deals like that take time. These are big sums you're talking about. There's a lot of lawyers involved and agents and a lot of different parties have to sign off off on it. So it's no surprise to me that even in a situation like this, where it's fairly clear Chelsea are the only serious suitor and Leverkusen kind of have to sell and Havertz is clearly pushing to join Chelsea, it still takes time because the mechanics of it are complicated. Mm, mm. Well, Chelsea fans, there you go. You can stop. They got they got free Havertz trending. He's not in the jail cell, for God's sake. You guys need to relax. I was on that wave, you know, but anyways, with that being said, though, apart from Kai Havertz, before we get on to um, some other transfer um, rumours that we, not necessarily rumours, but news that has been, I would say not official, but it's definitely going to happen. I've been seeing, in the last 48 hours, I've seen quite a bit of news about Thiago Silva. And actually, just before we started recording this, I saw something somewhere saying that um, Fiorentina are probably going to be the ones to get him on. Was there any, was there actually anything serious with regards to this transfer? Were Chelsea actually looking at him? And do you think it's something that could possibly happen? I believe he's been offered to Chelsea. I think he's been offered to a lot of clubs because he's a free agent this summer. So he's, he's clearly looking for, for a new challenge. Um, I haven't heard anything to suggest that the interest is coming from Chelsea's side. You know, a club like Chelsea will get offered players all the time and free agents will proactively put their name or their, their representatives will put their names around to, to any clubs that they think might be in the market for a centre-back, which Chelsea clearly are. Um, Silver would be an unusual target for Chelsea. He, he turns 36 in September and this is not generally the age when defenders come to the Premier League and, and shine in top teams. It's, it's the, maybe the fastest, most intense league in Europe. Mm. That said, if Silva 
ends up winning the Champions League on Sunday and keeping that Bayern Munich attack at bay, he can probably make a credible argument that he can still do a decent job in a in, in a good team in a top league. But um, I'm I'm not convinced at this stage that he would he will be a Chelsea player. I know he's been offered to Chelsea. Yet. I'm sure he's mm. been offered to a lot of clubs. But also maybe keep an eye on Everton because Carlo Ancelotti has worked with him extensively, knows him really well. And um, Everton are always in the market for a, for a big name, a kind of splashy deal when they can do one. So we'll see what happens with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, because when I did end up, when I saw the news, I just felt like because um, of his age and the amount of money he's on, I think he's on £200,000, if I'm correct. Something along those lines. Something, sure. Yeah, he's on something quite, on quite a lot of money. And I just felt like with um, Chelsea's um, board and wanting older players, I don't think that something like what just happened. So do you feel like it's just one of those pieces of news to put out there since stuff is a bit slow, since the league isn't really on or anything at the moment? Or it's just typical transfer talk? Well, I think if, if you're a journalist and you hear that he's been offered to Chelsea, that's news and that's worth reporting. But it, it's just part of the standard mechanics of a transfer window, really. I think there's a, there's a lot of this stuff that goes on that we never hear about. Players get offered to clubs all the time. Clubs talk to the representatives of players that they never even make a move for. It's all part of doing a little bit of due diligence, doing a little bit of market research on behalf of clubs, on behalf of agents. So these people are always making calls and talking to each other. Occasionally we hear about it and occasionally we hear something and think, oh, that's interesting enough to, to write a story on. Um, so I do think it's valid, but um, I, I'm not sure here. I don't think it will happen. I'd be surprised if it happened because he doesn't fit the profile of a, of a Chelsea signing for all the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, the profile is a weird fit, I think. I, um, I was actually listening earlier. Uh, today, Liam, to some of your friends at TIFO, and they've uh, done some of their sensible podcast transfers, which are excellent. And they spoke about Zlatan Ibrahimovic being, despite his age, uh, a very important player in the dressing room and, and his influence on youth players. And and to me, the Thiago Silva links made sense because uh, a player like uh, Tamori would be able to learn a great deal from someone like Thiago Silva. But I think it's it's, it's a shame that it's unlikely to happen. But do you, think, do you think there would be any benefit in signing him for the younger players and the, especially sort of the defensive fragility that we've experienced this season? Do you think someone like Thiago Silva in the dressing room would be a big enough presence to maybe help fix some of those issues? Potentially. I mean, on the surface, you look at it and Thiago Silva's PSG's most successful ever captain, captain Brazil at a World Cup. You know, those on the surface are pretty unassailable leadership credentials but his leadership qualities have actually been questioned quite a lot over the course of his career like in 2014 he burst into tears in the middle of that penalty shootout against Chile uh, that Brazil won in the last 16 and got a lot of criticism in Brazil for that and then he got himself stupidly booked in the quarterfinal against Colombia which ruled him out of the 7-1 and of course meant David Luiz captain the team in the 7-1 and is the person who seems to get all the blame for that for that defeat but so Thiago Silva I think um, wasn't probably the best leader of Brazil in that World Cup I'd say and when you look at some of PSG's you know Champions League failures over the years he's been a part of that as much as he's been a part of their successes on the domestic level so I'm sure he's I mean he's got an awful lot of experience and technically he's he's been a fantastic defender for a long time but 
the questions for me over his mentality mean that I'd maybe think it's a little bit more nuanced than just saying he's he's kind of mid thirties. He'd be a good influence, and not not entirely sure really without knowing more about him as a guy. Okay, so um, I think it's best to focus on a transfer rumour that seems a bit more likely than Thiago Silva, and that seems to be Ben Chilwell. Um, we've seen over the last fortnight, I'd say, lots of um, left-back links as there has been uh, all summer with uh, Reguilón looking really strong, um, looking really favourable and hearing that he's at a nice price. But I think um, most fans would consider Chilwell to be um, at least Lampard's number one target, especially uh, considering the, the amount of media attention that um, that move seems to receive. Do you have any sort of updates on, on how that um, transfer situation is going? Does it look likely he's going to join the club um, by the time the transfer window closes? Um, and do you believe that he's Lampard's number one target or have the club been looking elsewhere for um, covering that position? Yeah, I put Chilwell really in the same bracket of Havertz at this stage in that I expect it to get done um, probably sooner rather than later. Again, no one knows the exact timing, so that's down to the clubs, but I, I expect Chilwell to be a Chelsea player. Chelsea have always been confident and he's always been Lampard's number one target at left back. I mean, my colleague Simon Johnson, I have to credit with leading the way on this story, he reported that Chelsea had made Chilwell their number one target for left back back in December. Um, and that wasn't with a view to January because at the time, they didn't even know if they could sign players in January. And then, of course, even when they did, they, they kept their powder dry. They, they knew that Leicester probably wouldn't um, even agree to talks at that point, given how high they were flying in the Premier League under Brendan Rodgers. Um, so it was always one for this summer. But Lampard has always, has always liked Chilwell more than any, any of the other potential names on the list. And uh, I think you've seen more broadly with Lampard it seems funny to say when they've signed Ziyech, Werner and potentially Havertz as well, but there has been a preference with Lampard towards Premier League proven talent in some of the players he's looking at. Before they moved for Werner, he advocated Chelsea to try and get Aubameyang. Um, wow. and, and that's kind of consistent with his, his liking of Chilwell and you know, other names that they've looked at in terms of the goalkeeper situation. Um, you know, we've heard Nick Pope, centre-back, we've heard Lewis Dunk. Some of these names are more underwhelming than others to, to fans, but the one common strand is that they are all proven to some degree or another in the Premier League. Uh, and of course, Declan Rice. Um, so I think Lampard has, has a preference for players who he knows can come in and make an impact right away. Shilwell also fits Chelsea's profile in, in terms of being the right age. Um, where he will have resale value, but he can also grow within the club to be to become better by Chilwell, particularly in in comparison to you know some of the in inverted commas sexier names on the list. You know Tagliafico, Alex Tellez, Reguilón, as you said, some of the other names they've been linked with. But Chilwell is a good player. He's a he's an England international. He's a good age. He can improve further. Um, he may not have had the best season this year, but I think that's partly been because of all the transfer speculation that's been around him. And Leicester have been resigned for quite a while to the fact that they he probably would go this summer. So the, the question was always about price. And I don't know what that price is yet. We'll probably get a clearer indication as, as the deal grows closer. But I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the two clubs will agree and he'll be a Chelsea player. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense for him to join. I also thought that um, 
it's really interesting for you to say about the sort of quote-unquote sexier names because um, whilst they may sort of the transfer signings that we've been making echo slightly those you'd make on FIFA I think Chilwell um, is a slightly more defensive presence than um, a lot of the left backs we've been linked to and I think that might be a more important characteristic going forward um, touching once again on the defensive fragility that we've experienced this season um, do you think that might be one of the key traits that Lampard's sort of uh, advocating getting him for because he's he's more defensively sound than someone like Alex Tellez who puts up incredible goals and assist numbers in a slightly weaker league but his defending can sometimes be questioned whereas Chil Chilwell gen generally does quite well defending apart from being spun by Mares at times do you think he's going to be a more uh, defensive left back and a bit more traditional or do you think he'll be um, moulded slightly into improving his attacking prowess as well? Well, I think Lampard wants a left-back that can do both. And he hasn't had that. He hasn't had a left-back who can really offer balance to the team in that sense. I mean, talk about attacking left-backs. Both Emerson and Alonso are that in their way. You can you can say they're probably, Emerson, maybe not as impactful in the final third as you would like. Alonso's got a very unusual type of impact in that he's kind of the, the striker of wing-backs in terms of the amount of goals he scores and positions he gets into. He's an effective attacking player, but neither of them can be relied upon to defend their positions. Um, and so Lampard, I think, sees in Chilwell um, someone who can potentially tick both boxes, that he has the, he has the athleticism to get up, up the field, supply good crosses, um, link well with, with Chelsea's midfield creators, but at the same time, offer enough protection to his centre-backs um, and especially with some of the attack-minded players he'll have in front of him, he'll need to be solid defensively. Um, so I, th I think that's what he sees is he wants a, a kind of complete player and we've seen with the likes of, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson at, at Liverpool um, and the amount of money that Pep Guardiola spent on full-backs at Manchester City, just how important good full-backs are to top teams in modern football. And Chilwell has a little bit to go to reach the standard of Liverpool's fullbacks, um, but he, he might be able to get there. And I think he's at an age where he can certainly grow in this team. Mm, mm, I agree with that. And like you said, a lot of people like, I mean, when um, Liverpool got um, like their, their right backs and their left backs and everything, when they got all those people, it was... Um, they got individuals that were better suited to the systems that they had and all of that, but Chilwell isn't necessarily... I don't think Lampard signings are being brought in to just fit one specific system. They're all brought in to uh, be part of the team, long-lasting members of the team. You know, like Lampard changed when he was a player himself, you know, when different managers came in with different ideologies. He was just one of the main players in the backbone of that team. And when we're talking about a backbone at home, one name that has been floating around quite a lot at re recently has been Declan Rice. Now, Declan Rice is a player that Chelsea have been linked to and Chelsea fans initially didn't like, but you know how Chelsea fans can be. We've all swapped over and said, oh, Declan Rice, Decky, Decky Rice this, Decky Rice that. And also we've been linked to the likes of Lewis Donk as well. So speaking on those two players, Liam, do you think, what do you think, is there actually any legs to any of these things that have been said? Because the fee associated with uh, Declan Rice at the moment, I think is £80 million and Lewis Donk is about 40 So do you think these transfers are probably going to happen or you just think it's uh, some stuff that was mentioned and then it's probably just not going to happen for the sake of carrying news around? 
Well, with Declan Rice, there's no doubt that Lampard wants him. He's the first choice target at centre back, um, and and that might surprise a few people, given that he's he's made his name at West Ham as a central midfielder or a holding midfielder. Um, but he played centre back extensively on his way through Chelsea's academy up to being released at the age of 14. I believe he had experience playing centre-back in West Ham's academy as well. And he's kind of had an unusual path in that he he mainly found his his calling as a defensive midfielder and kind of exploded in his development quite late. And it seems strange to say that, given that he's only 21 now. But given how early most, most top prospects uh, develop these days, um, he was a relatively late bloomer. And, um, but Chelsea are very confident that Rice could easily adapt to being a centre-back, in a, especially in a high-possession team where his passing range could be, could be very valuable. But they want him just as much for his personality as his talent. They see him as a leader and a real presence on the pitch. And I think you can see that for what he's achieved at West Ham. You know, cap- captaining a Premier League side at 21 is no small thing and and he was able to do that towards the end of this season most notably against Chelsea in the game that West Ham won 3-2 um, so he's I, I really like Rice and not just because he looks quite a lot like me um, <laughs> he's he, I think he's a really impressive player he's he's got a real presence about him he's obviously got the the friendship and the chemistry with Mason Mount but I think in the grand scheme of this that's a fairly that's a pretty small reason in why Chelsea won they want him because he's a really, really good player and they think he fits well in, in what they want to do. But in terms of the price, I'd be surprised if that deal gets done this summer because the, the money West Ham are asking for is huge. And in a summer where Kai Havertz is the priority, they've already spent on Ziyech and Werner. They're going to spend on Chilwell as well. And, you know, they still have to address the goalkeeping situation at some point. Um it's a big ask to spend 80, 80 odd million on, on Declan Rice this summer. I, I, I would be surprised if it gets done. I it might just be one that the seeds are sown this summer and maybe Chelsea come back with more intent and, and maybe more money to throw at it a year from now. Um, in terms of Lewis Dunk, we, we've been told that there have been talks between Chelsea and Brighton, but it's not, there's nothing particularly advanced. It's just exploratory talks in which Dunk's name was kind of mentioned. Um, Brighton don't want to sell him, obviously. He's their, he's their homegrown captain. He's their, he's their big success story, and it would take a big fee for them to do that. Now, I, I sort of compare him to the kind of signing that Gary Cahill was for Chelsea back in 2012. You know, similar profile of, sort of lower half Premier League centre-back, very solid, reliable performer in the Premier League. Um, and Cahill went on, I always call Cahill like a good player who enjoyed a fantastic career because that's what he did at Chelsea, he ended up winning everything. Um, but the difference is Chelsea paid £7 million for Cahill. Paying £50 million for Lewis Dunk is a, is a very different proposition. Exactly. At, the age of 20, yeah. at the age of 28, he doesn't have a ton of resale value either. So for that reason, people I've spoken to that um, are kind of close to the situation say they'd be fairly surprised if that deal gets done or if there's any if there's anything more to it really than than the talks that have already been held. I, I think that was just the case of Chelsea doing a little bit of market research, seeing what players are around, what sort of prices are, are being 
bandied around and, and no more than that really. Hmm. So, I mean, when you say that then, so that's basically ruled out um, Thiago Silva, obviously we ruled that at the start, then now we've ruled out, not sort of ruled out Lewis Dunk, obviously Declan Rice is someone that I really, really do want at the club, and like you said, that was one that I was going to ask you before you did answer, was uh, if you could see this still happening next summer. So, assuming that happens next summer, Thiago Silva is obviously just a load of dust, and Lewis Dunk is probably not going to happen. What's going to happen with the centre-back situation at Chelsea this summer? Let the podcast show that I'm shrugging. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. We don't know is the answer. I've, you know, I've, I've written a piece on this that will go live on the Athletic very shortly, which is basically just making the point that there is no, um, there doesn't look to be an easy solution to Chelsea's centre-back search at the moment. And, you know, you saw Manchester City move for Nathan Ake, Chelsea had an option to bring him back to Stamford Bridge for 40 million. They passed on that because they looked at him um, again in, in quite a lot of detail and decided that he wasn't enough of an upgrade or wasn't particularly an upgrade at all on the centre-backs they already had. All they have are, are, are pretty good, I think, like as individual players. They all have things to recommend them and they could be valuable in the right circumstances. What you need is that kind of A-plus leader, organiser to, to make everyone around them better. And those players are not, well, there aren't many of them walking the earth, first of all. And, uh, and the ones that are are not easy to get. So I think it's a big, big issue for Chelsea and it's going to be a difficult problem for them to solve in this transfer window. And at the moment, we've still got a long way to go. Obviously, the deadline doesn't expire until um, until early October but at the moment they're focusing their, their energies on on other areas to get the deals they know they can get done done first. Well Liam talking about uh, situations that are difficult to resolve you briefly touched upon it before uh, talking about Lewis Duncan I'm sure um, you will almost be bored to death of speaking about it by the time the window closes but I think we need to touch on the goalkeeper situation um, Obviously, uh, Jamie Cummings has gone out on loan to Stevenage very recently. He was someone that people were talking about as possibly having a chance um, to play a few games. But it looks like he's going to play regularly in League Two, which, um, you know, I, I think is a decent move for a young keeper. But I, I, I personally felt that he would be better off at a slightly bigger club. No disrespect to Stevenage, but he's there. And if he gets the minutes at his age, I think that's more valuable than anything else. Um, but realistically, we need to talk about Kepper and what the situation is um, with him and, and goalkeeper incomings. And does it look like we're targeting anyone? Because on social media, we all see that people want uh, Onana or Jan Oblak or, you know, there's a whole range of keepers, Pope, Henderson, but Henderson looks likely to sign um, a longer contract at Man United now. Um, are there any real solid links coming out of the club um, from your end about keepers that we're targeting or have any conversations taking place in that specific area? Well, what I find interesting about Chelsea's goalkeeper search, and I, I wrote this earlier in the week um, in, a, in a more in-depth piece about Kepa, was that for all the other positions Chelsea are looking at, there's a fairly clearly defined number one choice that we all know about. You know, They've already brought in Zia Converna. We know they want Havertz. We know they want Chilwell as the number one for left-back. We know they'd like Declan Rice as the number one for centre-back. For goalkeeper, 
there's been a lot of different names mentioned. And I think there's been a lot of different credible names, names that are credibly on the list mentioned, you know, the likes of Jan Oblak, Andre Anana, Nick Pope, um, different, a, a wide range of names in a wide range of price brackets. And I think that shows that Chelsea themselves aren't 100% sure how much money they'll have to, sort, to throw at this problem in this window. And a big part of that is because they don't really know what's happening with Kepa. Until they answer that question, they don't know how to answer the question of who replaces him. Um, and it's Kepa is a, is a nightmare situation for everyone involved, not least himself, because I think he had an okay debut season in England. I didn't think he was particularly good, but he wasn't yeah, a agreed. huge negative. Um, and he's, he's had the worst statistical season in Opta's database this year, which is <laughs> yeah. just yeah. Uh, absolutely horrendous. And when you're talking about the most, um, most expensive goalkeeper in history, that has completely tanked his value at a time when a pandemic has hit and tanked the broader value of the transfer market. So it is really a kind of perfect storm of bad circumstances for Chelsea to try and get any sort of value for Kepa this summer. I don't, you know, Lampard has made it very, very clear. He doesn't trust him to be his number one. He dropped him for the game where top four was in theory on the line. It didn't end up mattering against Wolves, but it was in theory on the line. And then he didn't play him in the FA Cup final. The two most important games of the season, he played a 38-year-old, Willie Caballero. So Lampard's feelings are pretty clear, even if he hasn't publicly criticised Kepler too much. He, he wants a new goalkeeper. Um, and he will certainly be making that point repeatedly in, in Chelsea's transfer discussions. But where, what do you do with Kepa? I think the only solution that could be any way feasible in this window is to loan him somewhere, uh, maybe cover his wages, cover a portion of his wages and put him at a club, maybe a Spanish club, um, where he's in a position to rebuild some value. And then you, and then the one positive, and it, it depends which way you look at the situation, but if you look at it this way, it's a positive, is that he has five years left to run on that massive yeah. contract that he signed two years ago. That's the bad thing, because at the moment, that's a terrible value contract that you're locked into for five years. But it's a good thing, because it gives time for Chelsea to loan him out. They could even loan him out for two years. To rebuild, to try and rebuild some value, and he'd still have three years left on the deal if he plays well in those two that you could then use to to maybe get some value for him in a market that's less affected by COVID nineteen. But at the moment, it's it's a nightmare scenario for for Chelsea. It's it's a horrible situation for Kepler. I feel sorry for him because his confidence is clearly shot, uh, and I don't think. The goals he, he's conceded and the mistakes he's made this season are entirely his fault either. Defence is always a collective effort, whether it's success or failure. Um, but it's clear we're in an untenable situation as far as what Lampard wants in terms of a goalkeeper. And Chelsea is still trying to answer the question of, of where, where they go from here. So, in addition to that, can you see if if we can't resolve the Kepa scenario, do you think um, if we're left with uh, Kepa and uh, Caballero next season, who do you see being the number one? I think, I think I'm going to answer that question by saying I don't see Chelsea being left with Kepa and Caballero next season. 
Um, I think they will end up with another goalkeeper. Mm. I, think, I, I think I think they will they will end up with someone new. Whether that person comes in with Kepa, or more likely, I think they come in and Kepa goes out on loan somewhere. Um, but I, I do think they'll get someone in. It's just the the uncertainty comes from who that guy will be and what sort of price bracket they will be shopping in. Because I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure if even Chelsea know at this stage. Mm. Mm. I mean, Liam, that is us done with transfer stuff. You know, everybody's always asking about transfer. I'm just like, guys, relax. Because I keep saying as well, because I do have some family that are also journalists as well. When it comes to stories and things like this, um, you guys will always say what you know and what's available. You know what I mean? Because everybody wants to get out their piece first. Everyone wants to give out, give their opinions immediately and all of that. So to all the listeners... You can leave my mentions alone, leave Jay alone, and I beg you, leave Liam alone. If not, I swear to God, I might start blocking some of you. Nah, I'm just kidding. But with all of that out of the way, Liam, I actually want to share some of your opinions on certain how next season they're going to go. So earlier on today, on the day of recording, so earlier on today, we did see that um, the Premier League fixture list has, has come out. And have you had a chance to look at the um, our first six fixtures? Do you have them? Do you know them by... Uh, I going to say, I, t- I tweeted them earlier, so I'll just get the tweet up, so I'm looking at it as you ask me. Oh, okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But I'm not trying to find out, what do you think of the uh, those first six games? I see Liverpool is in there as the second one. I feel like with uh, the likes of Kai Havertz, the likes of Werner and all the rest, I feel like if we could go into that game beating Liverpool, that that would really start... I basically expect us to um, start this winning streak or something. I'd expect us to build a lot of momentum if we do manage to win that Liverpool game. So I just want to find out what do you think of this uh, of the first six fixtures for next season for Chelsea and how important they could be? I think it's an interesting mixed bag in terms of the games. I mean, yeah, you've got Liverpool at home and United away in in a six. United away was obviously early last year as well. But, it, you know, depending on what you thought of this season, you might be more concerned with the games against Palace, Southampton, Brighton, because those are the kind of games that actually really damaged Chelsea last season and really hurt their bid for the top four. It's important to build early momentum. We know that. And I, I actually thought Lampard did a good job um, of navigating a very difficult early fixture list last season. Because if you remember, they were... Old Trafford on the opening day and then they had the Super Cup against Liverpool where they went to extra time um, in midweek and then Leicester at home the following weekend. That was a really difficult start and I thought Chelsea did well to, obviously they lost 4-0 to United, but they did well to recover from that quite quickly and not lose too much heart. In terms of the psychology of it with with so many new players, it's, it's very difficult to tell ahead of time what it would be. You could you can make the argument that by beating Liverpool early, it could be brilliant for, for confidence and for momentum. Um, you could also make the argument that it could raise expectations to an unrealistic level. Mm. Because I think Chelsea know, I think Chelsea know that even if they do get the majority of their number one targets in this transfer window, including Havertz, they're not ready to bridge the gap to Liverpool and City yet. You know, that Liverpool and City raised the bar for winning the Premier League title to unprecedented heights over the last three years, whereas it used to take 85, 90 points to win the league. Now it takes 95, 100, and that's a result of their excellence. Um, so that's the standard Chelsea need to reach. They got 63 
this season. That's a huge, huge gap mm. to bridge. Um, yeah. And and you don't do that, you know, well, you certainly don't do it with a defence that concedes 54 goals. But um, even with the attacking talent they've added, especially considering a lot of those players are younger, I think it will take time for this this group to grow together and for Lampard to to, to learn as a coach um, if they're gonna if they're gonna reach that level collectively. But I think what what interested me more actually than the first six fixtures was the last six. I don't know if you've seen. Mm. But Chelsea have got back to back London derbies away at West Ham at home to Fulham, and then within the space of a week they've got Man City away, Arsenal at home, Leicester at home. Wow before they have Villa on the final day. And so you look at that, that kind of late April to, to late May stretch, that last month of the season. I don't think Chelsea want to go into that with their top four status in doubt or in question. Mm. Mm. In, in, you know, in an ideal world, they would be looking up rather than down this season, rather than over their shoulders. They'd be looking up at Manchester City and Liverpool. And even if they're still... You know, 15 points. I think that would be seen as a very positive season. Those City and Liverpool don't regress massively, obviously. Um, but the important thing is, I think that I think in many ways Chelsea and Man United probably go into the new season with very similar expectations, which is to just to show progress towards the two best teams in England. And if they can win a cup, great. If they can have a nice have another nice little run in the Champions League great but it's two t- two young teams trying to show progress in the right direction mm, I like that I actually do like that because you know so I mean I was actually going to ask that as well because I was thinking what the expectations around Stamford Bridge next season are going to be as a fan personally I would want to see us like you said I want us to be looking up rather than over our shoulders I want us to actually have top four cemented you know what I mean I don't want us to have this uh, end of season because a lot of fans are happy when we celebrated top four. And any Arsenal fans that are listening, I apologise, but we're not Arsenal, you know what I mean? Like, we're not going to look back and be like, oh, we qualify for top four. That's not something to celebrate over. I mean, this season, the circumstances were different. So, obviously, that was acceptable. But next season, I'm looking at a top four finish, a solid top four finish at the bare minimum. And I'm also looking at us winning some trophy. I don't know if that's going to be the... Uh, FA Cup, I don't know if it's going to be the League Cup, I don't know which cup that's going to be, but do you think it's the same thing around Stamford Bridge? Would you say it's around the same thing? Yeah, I think so. I think um, what they did this season in very unique circumstances was was pretty much on par. It was, it was a good achievement. It, it, it looked a better achievement last summer when you didn't know that Tottenham were going to completely disintegrate Sack Pochettino when you yeah. didn't when you didn't know that Arsenal were going to sack Emery, when you didn't know that Man United were going to be a mess until Bruno Fernandes turned up. Um, three points were not great, but the point is they got, and they got Lampard in an established account players uh, who need to off in this squad for, for years to come. So that's the real positive. And if he'd, Managed to cap that with an FA Cup win. I think that would have made it a really good season. In United. They weren't able to do that, which obviously left a little bit of a bitter taste at the end of the season. But overall, I think Lampard, Lampard did well. Next season will be much more of a case of welcome to the real Chelsea job. Yeah. Because this is where it starts now. This is, the, the, this is where the pressure of 
working for an owner as uncompromising and ambitious as Abramovich um, comes to bear on you as a manager. You know, you, you have to deliver results at a high level. And like I said, there is a there is a dose of realism at Chelsea. I think they recognise how great Liverpool and City are right now and how long they've been at this level. So they know Chelsea will take time to get there, particularly as a younger as it, with a younger squad. But they want progress. They want to see separation in the league table from the likes of certainly Arsenal, who I think probably be better under Arteta next year. Um, Spurs, maybe on a par with Manchester United, but they <coughs> maybe on a par with Manchester United. I think they'd like to be ahead of them as well, and certainly ahead of Leicester. Um, and looking up, looking looking up at Liverpool and City and closing that points gap. So I think that's the that's the ambition. If they can cap that with a trophy and try and maintain uh, the the winning culture that Chelsea have done pretty well to maintain during the 2010s, that would be an added positive. Obviously, you can't control who you draw in which round and the circumstances you play these games. So there's always an element of luck. But Chelsea have, have done a pretty good job uh, in recent history of finding ways to win cup competitions. And, and I think Lampard will be expected to, to try and maintain. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense, really. It's, it's quite hard to um, to try and top what you say in terms of expectations and how this season went. I think we all want to see um, see the club looking up rather than um, being worried about what's behind them. I would add a, qu- a quick caveat in suggesting that if fans want to see a Chelsea side that are uh, definitely going to push for a title next season, they should maybe watch the women's side a bit more. Um, I think Emma Hayes is doing a fantastic job there as well. Um, and you know, the level that they're bringing to the women's game is is crazy and, and it's really great to see what's going on over there, not just in the men's game. Um, but if we if we move on ever so slightly from uh, how the season's gone, Liam, you are not just a uh, Chelsea fan, but you're an excellent journalist as well and you work um, now for The Athletic. Um, and I would like to throw in quite quickly, um, obviously this podcast isn't sponsored, but The Athletic is something that if you don't uh, subscribe to, you really should because you get to uh, read really insightful pieces from incredible journalists like Liam um, and supporting journalism in uh, you know the current crisis and the time we live in is really important so if you don't do that I'd heavily recommend it um, but Liam we have a few questions from listeners and the first one comes from Michelle and it touches on um, your career really and it's, it says how do you see the athletic further impacting the future of journalism and what has been the biggest difference you've noticed in your career since joining the athletic? from Michelle. Yeah, so I think um, I think the athletic has the potential to be a real game changer in in sports journalism because I you know I've been in this industry now in one form or another since 2011, uh, full time since I'd say 2012, and it was an industry that was really struggling to find its way or finding a way to make itself make make itself pay you know make good journalism pay for itself. And I think you see when you look across the spectrum of, of media companies from newspapers to some of the newer digital outlets, um, there's been a heavy reliance on advertising for, for income. And as a result, make compromises in terms of what you do because of that advertising and because, and because of that revenue that limits how much you can pay people. Uh, it limits how much time they can devote to things that actually genuinely add value you know like original journalism original analysis 
there's a lot more clickbait. There's a lot more you know, tra transfer transfer gossip that has no real grounding in anything substantial that you see online. Because unfortunately, if you if you are being judged on traffic and page views and clicks, then that is what that model rewards. That's the kind of content that model rewards. Whereas the thing that attracted me to the athletic initially was that you are writing for subscribers. You're you're writing for people who paid to read you, and there's a lot, awful lot of pressure that comes with that. And I feel it on a regular basis because things have to be good. And if you make mistakes, it like anywhere else in the internet, people will not hesitate to point out in the comments. Um, but it means that they are invested in the work you do. And the fact that they are invested means that you have the time to, to go and do things that are a little bit, digging a little bit deeper and trying to tell people things they don't know. And the only barometer for success is not page views, it's not clicks, it's just quality. Because good stuff brings in, we, we, we noticed a clear correlation since the time when we launched last year to now. The things that bring in the most new subscribers, the things that engage our current subscribers the most, are just the best stories. Uh, that that it's that simple. We just have to find the best the best stories, the best things to write about, um, and and the things that people most read. And that's been the most rewarding thing. It's been the toughest year of my career in terms of the work we do because a lot of it's longer form stuff. Uh, I barely wrote over a thousand words before I got here. I've barely written under a thousand words since. But it's also been probably the most rewarding year of my career. Well, definitely the most rewarding career of my year of my career. And the, I'd say the, the biggest benefit to me of working at the Athletic is just working with so many incredible people on this team. There are so many journalists who've been in this game for so much longer than I have, who I've respected for years at different publications from from afar. And now they're my teammates, and I can go to them and ask them for advice on things. We can share in Texas all so much better at our jobs and it means that we can we can often team up to do pieces that just simply wouldn't be possible to do anywhere else there's nothing more rewarding than that I mean I mean I really do appreciate that because you know thing is um because of what I do because uh, I'm, I'm still a student obviously I'm, I'm working now as well as part of my degree and everything I do software engineering as everybody on this podcast has heard me say a thousand times but I mean, I'm proud of what I do, you know, and everything. But I mean, I love um, I love reading a lot. I really, really do. And I believe in, because obviously I know people as well, family members that are journalists as well. And paying for all these subscriptions and stuff like that has always been something that I love to do because I feel supporting someone's good work really, really does mean a lot to them. I can use that as an, like for myself as an example, when I have like a program or something I develop for like a client or something and they don't really have to pay me because I mean I'm a student you know but when they do go that extra mile and do show me all that because I mean I don't make a living off it yet but what am I just trying to say I'm not trying to say that this is one of the reasons why I picked up SW6 daily and I started um, giving this platform to different people to be able to write and I wanted to ask you as well, quite a lot of people have always asked me because uh, now I no longer handle um, SW6 Daily's um, writing and I don't longer handle the website. That's all down to Jay at the moment because of uh, how I'd, how our career paths have gone down. But I'm not trying to find out, Liam, a lot of people are always asking me, Dami, what can I do to um, 
improve my skills because I was always one that did public speaking. I mean, I've written a few unpublished books that have not come out. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of writing in my time. But I was trying to find out what kind of advice would you give to people that are trying to achieve what you've achieved over this uh, over the last decade? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of strands to it. I mean, in terms of becoming a better writer, um, I mean, it helps. There, there are no absolutes to this, but it helps if you've, you know, studied sort of humanities, essay subjects, things that have required you to write in school or at university, just because you've had that practice. The, uh, fundamentally, the only way you get to write, you just have to write a lot, reps. Um, and and the, other, the other key is to read a lot. And whenever, I, whenever someone messages me going, oh, trying to start out what do I do and I say read and write it always sounds quite I, I, I try and make clear that I'm not being disrespectful and dismissive it is actually true the more the more quality writing that you read and the more you write stuff the better you will get because the the more quality things you read you you will even subconsciously even without using it you'll pick up the things that top writers do the way they structure arguments the way they structure sentences just little tricks of the trade here and there that will help you along your way and bit by bit. it takes a long time that you don't come into this um you don't come into this industry or any industry that requires writing um being able to write like jonathan lou does for the mm -hmm. guardian who i think he's made probably the best sports writer in the world uh he's and he's a very nice guy um but he he's just a phenomenal talent and that, but i think even he has improved over time because that's just the nature of the business um, the second strand to it, I think, in terms of making it in the industry, is that you have to be very, very determined. I, you know, I, when I was starting out in the industry, I've, I've got a lot of, you hear a lot of old heads in journalism going, oh, you won't, you won't get in unless you know, but unless you're like the son of the editor or you know, you know, you know someone who knows someone. And that's not the case. It's not the case. It's a difficult industry to break into because a lot of people like me actually will come out of school or come out of university with no real idea what they want to do and they'll just think I love football I quite like writing when they give it a go and there, there are a lot of people and, and a lot fewer jobs but that just means it's difficult it doesn't mean it's impossible but if you if you work hard you put yourself in a position where um you, you pester enough people to give you a chance um, you will eventually get an opportunity whether that be an internship or you know a, a freelance writing gig somewhere and you will slowly make your way and what you have to do from that point is aggressively seek um, aggressively but politely seek um, constructive criticism of your work you have to get people who know good writing and know good journalism to look at what you've done and tell you honestly what you're doing right what you're doing wrong and and never take it as an insult because it's the only way you get better um and more more general tip, tips that have served me well is just if you do get if someone does give you a chance be work really hard um be reliable always turn up on time and be likable it goes an awful long way in 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 journalism because it's a really small industry. I, I I know a lot of people 
who I came into the industry with in 2011 or worked for in 2011, who have just moved companies and moved to different jobs. And everyone knows each other now. So if you apply for a job somewhere else, there's generally someone you can talk to or someone who can put in a good word for you somewhere because they know you're good. And that goes a long way. Yeah, I think that's, that's that advice is sort of is, is bang on, isn't it? And everyone who really wants to get into journalism or, or writing, I think um, everything that I've sort of read or, or listened or been told by yourself, Liam, or people like Harriet, who, who you also know, or Alex Stewart from TIFO, I remember emailing him a few times to um, get some advice on what to do. And everyone says the same thing, you know, just, just keep writing and keep going. And um, eventually somewhere along the line, if you, if you really keep, keep trying, it will happen for you. Um, I think it's fantastic as well that you you, um, you mentioned about reading and writing, you know, and as of September, I'm going to be doing my master's in, uh, in literature, um, which is very similar to what Sid Lowe done. And, and I was baiting about whether to do my master's in uh, journalism or literature, but following an interview with Sid Lowe, it kind of made me want to go down the literature route because that's what he did. And um, I think if you have that sort of background and um, in words and, and writing and receiving criticism on pieces that you that you construct I think that always helps but um, seeing what you guys do at The Athletic I think should motivate everyone even more but I have one one little question on top of it actually because you started in 2011 um, so you've been pretty much in this for a decade now how do you feel social media has changed the game do you think it's made it easier for people who are trying to get into sports journalism like us at SW6 Daily you know there's a lot of people that uh, write a few pieces for us and you know people are really keen do you think that media is has benefited because it's allowed people to create their own platforms or do you think it's made things uh, more competitive in terms of full-time um, employment in in that sector it's a, it's a really good question I think I have deeply mixed feelings about social media now because I think it's massively enriched the world it's also kind of destroyed the world <laughs> in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, but I, there's absolutely no way my career would have panned out the way it has without social media and without Twitter in particular. Um, I think it, it's massively changed every industry, but sports journalism is, is certainly no different to that. The fact that now I think individual journalists, you can, you can measure their followings, you know, there is literally a number that says how big their following is. I think yeah. that I think a lot of look at that, and, um, and 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 so that that's a big thing. I think just the idea of being able to talk directly to the people that follow you, um, and and to you know you get ideas for things to write about. You, you bounce things off them; they bounce things off you. Um, that's really important. There's there's obviously also the broader toxicity to to social media and to Twitter, which doesn't help. Um, and, and is actually, I find Twitter quite a miserable place to be now, which is quite sad. Oh, wow. I, I don't, I, I, I enjoyed being on it about 10 years ago when it was basically all just people cracking jokes at each other. <laughs> whereas, whereas now the, you, you look below the line of the tweets, and well, you, go, you go to some dark places. But getting back to the point on the industry, um, I think it, broadened things out massively because if you looked 10 years ago um, I think a lot of the newspapers were only just beginning to see the value of their digital operations and their social media operations 
and a lot of digital companies um, were not anywhere near as big in the UK as they are now. Like Gold.com, where I got my start, um, was big. It was certainly big in the rest of the world, but I think it's a lot bigger now. Um, and it has a lot more name recognition in the UK than it did when I, when I started working for them. Um, ESPN as well, I think, was a big website when I started working for them in, in, in 2012, but more so on the American side. And I think that also has more reach now in the UK side. But you've also got a lot of independent media outlets and social media outlets. You know, operations of vastly different sizes, like the one that you guys have. Um, I think it's it's made everything more democratic, and that's really good. That's really good because there's a there are more opportunities than ever. There are more avenues than ever for talent to rise through, and I've noticed that in in a conventional sense in the industry with um, with a lot of people having career paths like mine. I've never worked for a newspaper, and if and that wouldn't have been possible in the in in the you know, in the early 21st century, that wouldn't have been possible to have that kind of career and, and have a long career in this business. Um, but it's also possible to, you know, like start your own podcast or, you know, start start your own website and actually make it work. And and I think that's really good. And there's a there's just a lot more ways for, for talent to get noticed now, now. And it's a lot more meritocratic in that sense. Mm, mm. I hear that, man. I mean, because like you said, even... Um... Because, for example, like I said, I do have some family members in journalism. One of the uh, elder uncles in the family, is, uh, he's been doing journalism for, what, 25 years now? And he, like he said, he, when the, the time, when stuff started going online and everything, because he wrote for The Guardian and everything, and he was just like, you know what? When stuff started going online, it was just like, this is, this is going to change the game. I remember, I mean, I didn't remember because, I mean, I wasn't too old at that time, but he used to always say that it was back in... Um, in 20, like 2005, 2006, I just remember a lot of people in the family told me that he kept on saying that back then the newspaper was going to become very relevant very soon and that the internet was going to give this platform to absolutely anybody to start anything that they want. And if the people feel like um, that your work is good, which is very, very important, like I keep telling a lot of people, it's not just about having this platform. You need to bring something new to the table. You need to have a very high standard. You need to have very good quality to be able to shine. But... Like you said, I, like, I love that. I really do love that. So anyone that's listening, and for people that are listening, I hope uh, I hope you did take something from that. Now, Liam, before we do log off, you know, I'm sure you've noticed the trend these, uh, for these past few years. Every day is football, football writing, football related. We're talking about transfers, talking about games, talking tactics. What do you like to do? So assuming there was no football, let's say they stopped football um, completely and then that was the end of football. Obviously, I assume you can still write here, but they've stopped football. Football does not exist. We don't even know what that is. What does Liam do on a day-to-day basis? What sort of stuff do you like doing by yourself and with like the family and everything? You're basically taking me back to April. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, it's, that's a hard one to answer because... As, as my wife would tell you, I am obsessed with football, genuinely, um, still, even though it's been my job. And I know a lot of people, I know some journalists say, like, you know, you work in this industry, you lose your passion for it after mm. a little while. I still love, I still absolutely love football. Um, I love watching it. And so, and, and actually, I love sport in general. So it, I'd say my, my second love after football 
is the NBA mm. and the football fan. Uh, I've become a huge basketball fan, I think, in the last sort of four or five years. That's the question everyone asks me, and I don't support a team. Because really? I actually quite I actually quite enjoy the, one and of the reasons true. I like the NBA is because it's so different. Mm. Um, and I and I can I can enjoy it. I can appreciate all the different teams and the different moves they make. Um, and I, I have favourite players. My favourite player is in Lillard. Nice. Um, I, I think I think is I think is the only correct answer, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, got got a soft spot for Luka Doncic as well. But yeah, um, NBA. I'm a huge, huge NBA fan. But generally, if there is sport on, with the exception of cricket, which I can't stand. Thank um, you. I will, Thank you. <laughs> I will watch virtually every every sport. I will not um, hear any cricket slander on this podcast. <laughs> it's a good game. Let's just—it's not quite as good as basketball. I'll let you have that. But other, other than that, I'm I'm pretty boring, like everyone else. Watch watch Netflix and, um, and just go about my day. Why watching on Netflix now? Then I just saw this thing on Netflix. I think it's the Rain, and I just finished Umbrella Academy, so it wasn't too bad. What watching, watching Money Heist, man. Money Heist has got me. I'm That's excellent. Yeah, I'm Money on, Heist was excellent. I just yeah. finished season three, part three, whatever it's called. Yeah, it's crazy that program. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. No, I actually, um, I'm not at the moment. I'm guiding my wife through The Wire, and we're almost near the end of it. It's my second run through mm. The Wire. Which I absolutely love. I've been, I've been really to watch The Wire. I've been, um, I don't know if you listen to the Stadio boys at all, Liam, with versus Musa Okwonga and Ryan Hunt. I know of them. I haven't yeah, listened they, to it. They I do some work at The Ringer and they've, um, they've done a, a whole uh, podcast series essentially on um, football players that would be cut, uh, members from The Wire and it's made me really want to watch it. So I think that's definitely top. Have they already things. done Eddie and Ketia as Marlowe Stanfield? Has that already been done? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, that is that. Look that up. That is absolute doppelgangers. That is those, <laughs> more those so teams. than you and Rice. You reckon? Yeah. Oh well, I don't know. I don't know. There are certain pictures where me and Rice look separated at birth. I mean, it didn't happen. There's there's a good there's a good ten years between us in age. But, um, yeah, it does look quite freaky. Oh my days! Oh my days! Well, Liam. Thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. I honestly do. And um, before we just um, let you go, finally, I just want to ask you, is there anything you want to just, you know, any exclusive you're trying to drop in to like, you know, for anyone, just something, something little, something little. Uh, no, no. Oh. no I, don't, I don't have any, no. You know what? I... I'll, I'll leave you with this. I don't actually really like recording and training. I know it's a key part, key part of my job, but I find it the most tedious part of football. You don't like doing what? Sorry, reporting, reporting on, transfers. on transfers very much. I oh. find I find I find them very tedious. I have huge, huge respect for like my colleague David Ornstein is phenomenal, and like the hit, likes of him, Fabrizio Romano, mm. you know, Demarzio, people like that. Um, who who get incredible exclusives on international transfers? Like I have nothing but respect for them. But I find I'm so much more interested in what actually happens on the pitch and mm. why it happens on the pitch. And like when when I see a transfer like Timo Werner or Hakim Ziyech or Kai Havertz, I'm far more intrigued by the 
question how it'll all work on the pitch then sort of is it done yet you know what's the mm. price you know how, how did this happen um so yeah that that's unfortunately that's not an exclusive that's just an insight <laughs> into my into into my soul no no i mean for me I, I'm, I'm actually more or less on the same page because like the thing is I can't relate anywhere near to the same level. It's just that for me, I've got a few thousand followers and like people, the number of people that get into my DMs asking me ridiculous questions. Messi was reported to not want to play for Barcelona. Again, people are asking me if he's going to come to Chelsea because someone made an edit of Messi in the Chelsea jersey. <laughs> what do I look like to you? I am not his agent. Do you know what I mean? I just really hate it when the transfer window comes by and people have asked the same questions over and over and over and over and now it's now like a broken record. That's exactly what they sound like. But now I can understand that fully. I can understand that very fully. I mean, not to the same level as you, but I can understand that definitely. But thank you so much, Liam, for coming on to the SW6 Daily Podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. Jay, thank you for co-hosting this episode with me. I really did enjoy it as well. And Liam, hopefully we do have you on another time, sometime in the future when you're when you're less busy as well. But yeah, guys. I told you I came back again. It's a banger, another banger, and I don't miss. Listen, I do not miss. We're here with another banger. I hope you enjoyed this one, and I'll catch you guys in the next episode. Okay, bye-bye.